Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our journey through facial recognition. In the first episode, we talked a lot about uh, the sort of the current tech landscape of a company focusing on facial recognition, some issues with that. In the last episode, we focused primarily on the biological domain of facial recognition, and now we're bringing it back to technology to, uh, to finish up today. Uh, so one of the things that we were looking at Coming into today's episode was an article that I thought was really good in Wired magazine, again from this month, from January of 2020 by Sean Revive, called The Secret History of Facial Recognition. And I will say I was surprised to find out how far back facial recognition projects go. This this goes into the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. This 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 is a really good read, this uh, article. I mean, it, it's extremely well written. It almost has – I would say it has a, a very – narrative flow to it, beginning with this scene in which uh, uh, an elderly researcher who is, uh, you know, at this point, I believe, confined to a wheelchair, uh, is instructing his son to um, to unlock some old rotting files from the 60s and burn them in front of him. Yeah, in a garbage can in the garage or something. <laughs> yeah, with, you know, with, and you can, he can tell that there are things uh, you know, about uh, classified uh, information, uh, top secret or what have you, on the documents. So it's a wonder, wonderful, um, you know, ominous start to this article, uh, which, of course, deals predominantly with the, the origins of facial recognition and touches on other at times inspiring and other times uh, creepy and devastating scientific programs that were going on or in like in full swing during the 60s. Well, yeah, one of the things that really comes home in this article is that the creepiness of facial recognition technology is not new. That's mm-hmm. sort of been there since the very beginning. Yeah, it's not one of these things where um, – uh, like even the author here mentions, like, you know, social media where it seems great at first and it's not until it's, quote, in the wild that we begin to realize, oh, yeah, this is um, uh, civilization wrecking awfulness uh, and not just a, a fun way to share photos. Uh, no, it, it, at the time, they, there was a, a realization that this was uh, – Potentially problematic. Yeah, and so it might not come as a big surprise, especially given the story we mentioned about burning documents, that mm-hmm. some of the earliest funding for facial recognition technology research clearly came from the CIA and front companies set up to funnel CIA money. Yeah, this was this was super interesting. Uh, the uh, CIA funding through these uh, various phony companies, and and d- due to the CIA funding, some of the you know stuff was was secret. Uh, some of the materials only come out you know due to Freedom of Information um, Act filings, and uh, and some of the work was just never published. Uh, a lot of the work was never published. Uh, to, to drive home the creepiness, though, uh, one of the companies involved was this company Panoramic. Which uh, uh, which was also tied to other programs, including uh, the Project MK Ultra. Uh, it was one of uh, eighty organizations that worked on Project MK Ultra. In particular, quote subprojects ninety three and ninety four on the study of bacterial and fungal toxins and the remote directional control of activities of selected species of animals. And, <laughs> yeah. Animal control. Yeah, I, I mean, like if I can if I want to sick tigers at you from the other side of the world. Yeah, MK Ultra. Just to remind everybody, was. Uh, CIA project that 
explored the potential for mind control using psychedelics mm-hmm. uh, and other tactics, like basically looking at ways to take these mind-expanding um, uh, agents and use them to break down the human psyche and then inevitably build something back up that they can, could be tightly controlled. Now, the evidence today is that the mind control experiments of MKUltra didn't really work. But no, they, they were really good at destroying the human mind yes. I mean, because basically the project was responsible for psychological torture. Yeah. Uh, it, just a horrible program and a real blight on uh, the scientific history of uh, the United States. Um, you know, not the only blight, but but I think an appalling one. Uh, they were not good. They did not figure out a way how to re, uh, you know to rebuild, say, an ideal sleeper agent out of the psychological destruction that they wrought. Yeah. So a lot of this article focuses on this one main figure named Woody Bledsoe, who was a leader at this company, a founder and leader at this company, Panoramic Research Incorporated, which you mentioned earlier, uh, which got a lot of business from CIA and CIA uh, front organization funds funding in the 60s to study things like facial recognition. But if you put yourself back in the context of the 1960s, I think one thing that's kind of funny is people then might not yet have realized how difficult of a project recognizing a face would be for a machine because we'd have tons of, you know, sci-fi goes back decades before that where, of course, robots, computers, whatever, just recognize people easily. Yeah, and I think that's mainly because we would just we generally would just have a rough idea that a robot can do everything a person can do. A robot is a mechanical person, mm-hmm. and you didn't have to think too hard about all the complexities involved there. I mean, even like the best example of 1960s science fiction, and really one of the 20 and 21st century's best examples of science fiction, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it does reference facial recognition capabilities for how. But it doesn't – I wouldn't say that it really goes in depth on, about what that means. Mm-hmm. But but Hal does – is able to recognize faces and even like can recognize faces when it is a sketch as opposed to a video feed or a photo. Yeah, and I, I think if, if you're not well-versed in the computer technology world, it might not be immediately apparent what's so difficult about making a computer recognize a face. But – you know, our facial recognition systems, the things going on in our brain have amazing capabilities and they're analog, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a face a face has all kinds of variables that move around all the time. It can be extremely difficult to reduce a face to a set of numerical values, which are what you need to do in order to have a computer recognize a face. Yeah, as I, as I think we've explored in the previous two episodes, it's um – yeah, there's there's a lot going on in facial recognition. Uh, there are a number of challenges to it, and it is still not a perfected technology by any means. Yeah, that's true. And so I, I think it's reasonable to think of Woody Bledsoe and his colleagues as legitimate AI pioneers, even with their work in the 1960s here. Oh, absolutely. But Bledsoe was working with a number of um, – you know, highly talented inf- uh, individuals, sometimes on on um, projects like, uh, you know, involving atomic weaponry, for instance, before mm-hmm. he became more um, focused on AI. Uh, another individual that he worked on for, uh, concerning facial recognition was uh, Helen Chan Wolf, 
um, Wolf uh, was involved in the development of Shaky, uh, which is a robot, which DARPA describes as, quote, the first mobile robot with enough artificial intelligence to navigate on its own through a set of rooms. I think somebody at the company also worked on a robot called Mobot, which mowed lawns in a random and unattended pattern. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking, by the way. That is a thing Raviv mentions. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just always that, – that makes me think of the, the old Gumby short where um, the Gumby family have the robots that are doing uh, lawn care and uh, home repair and they just go berserk and the Gumby <laughs> family has to um, has to put them down. I don't think I know that one. Oh, it's good. There was a, an MST3K riff of it years back. That sounds horrible. It is. It's horrifying. Yeah. At the end, there's like a robot's head on the wall. It's, it's <laughs> terrifying material. Uh, but one of the things that ended up being the case, if, you, if you're trying to think, okay, in the 60s, how would you even begin to get a computer to recognize a face across different images? Uh, one of the problems is, of course, the lack of existing digitized imagery at the time, right? Well, I mean, we live in a world where digital imagery is ubiquitous. It was not at all back then. There was almost mm -hmm. none of it. Yeah, yeah. Today, when you read about facial recognition research, they're often working off of digital databases containing hundreds and if not thousands of photographs. Uh, and at the time, uh, yeah, the, how, how many digital uh, uh, photographs were there in the world? Right. So they actually had to have some kind of digitization process. Like they had to be able to take a photo and turn that photo into some numbers that could then be interpreted by the machine to try to recognize a person or, you know, say that, yeah, that's the same person or not. And so a lot of these uh, methods involve, number one, recognition rules based on explicit measures, not machine learning. They didn't mm -hmm. have the machine learning methods we have today back then. They would have to have explicit rules like the distance between randomly selected features of the face. Mm -hmm. So in this image, what's the difference between the left eyebrow and the right ear and the, you know, left eye and the cor right corner of the mouth or something. And furthermore, to get those measures, they often had to resort to what they called a man-machine approach, uh, which was it would pair initial measurements made by humans. Uh, it would take those measurements, turn them into numerical values, and then train the computer to match based on those values, which is quite laborious. Yes. Uh, and the man-machine approach was apparently necessary to input the measures basically until the 70s, until um, uh, Raviv writes, quote, In 1973, a Japanese computer scientist named Takeo Kanade uh, made a major leap in facial recognition technology using what was then a very rare commodity, a database of 850 digitized photographs. Wow. Uh, 850. Uh, taken from the 1970 World's Fair in Suida, Japan. Kanade developed a program that could extract facial features such as the nose, mouth, and eyes without human input. And so by doing that, Kanade was able to finally eliminate the man part of the man-machine approach, the, uh, the human input of the measuring and input of the values. Uh, but throughout all this period, I mean, there were still huge problems with machine recognition of faces. Like they, they would sometimes get to the point where uh, the system developed by, by Panoramic mm -hmm. would, be a, would be more efficient 
efficient than humans at matching faces under ideal conditions. So if you could get all the faces like oriented the same way, looking right into the camera and all that, the, the, the machine would be better than humans trying to match photos. But if you just pollute the imagery a little bit and make people like turn their heads or right. like have change any, the lighting, et cetera. Yeah. Any kind of problems like that, suddenly the machine loses all its advantages and the humans are better again. Right. And some of the other problems that are still issues today were problems of the time, like like depending too much on, say, uh, um, an all-white male database oh, or, yeah. uh, you know, or something to that effect, you know, where you just do not have – you don't have a, a, a broad enough sample of, of human appearances uh, to, to really have a robust uh, facial recognition system. Right. If it's not trained on humans generally, it's not going to work on humans generally. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, like the, the racial bias problems that show up in existing facial recognition technologies today were basically there right from the beginning. But towards the end of his article, Raviv writes, quote, Only in the past 10 years or so has facial recognition started to become capable of dealing with real-world imperfection, says Anil K. Jain, a computer scientist at Michigan State University and co-editor of Handbook on Face Recognition. Nearly all of the obstacles that Woody encountered, in fact, have fallen away. And one of the big ones they point to is uh, not just the fact that you can get some digital images now, but you can get so many of them that, you know, mm-hmm. it provides these vast databases for, for uh, machine learning and, and data sets for training of neural networks and stuff. That's right. You can just basically crawl, um, you know, any given social media site. And we'll, we've mentioned a few already. We'll mention a, a few different ones as we proceed here. Well, maybe we should pivot to talk about the ways that facial recognition technology is being used today. Uh, and there was one thing that I was looking at. Uh, so it was a piece in the New York Times. It was an opinion piece, a guy named Bruce Schneier, who is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, that was making a point about facial recognition that I'm not sure I fully agree with the framing of. But within making this, uh, within writing this article, he articulates something that I think is important and clarifying for us to remember as we go on. So to first acknowledge his main point. Uh, he writes, quote, facial recognition bans are the wrong way to fight against modern surveillance. Focusing on one particular identification method misconstrues the nature of the surveillance society we're in the process of building. Uh, so he's arguing facial recognition, you know, it's just one technology among many and banning it doesn't necessarily stop all of these other surveillance technologies from doing effectively the same thing. Uh, and we can talk later about why I'm probably not really convinced by this argument. But Mm -hmm. uh, the point that I think is clarifying is that he, you know, he says what we call facial recognition is not just one act, but it's at least three different acts, each coming with their own challenges. Quote, in all cases, modern mass surveillance has three broad components, identification, correlation, and discrimination. So, of course, identification is just the first step. It recognizes who you are. Correlation then associates that ID with other information about you. And then finally, discrimination treats you differently because of that ID or because of the associated information. Now, this in and of itself, of course, is something that, that humans are humans are perfectly capable of carrying out all three of these tasks without the aid of machines. Of course. But what we're talking about here is that it would be automated. Right. It would be something that would be happening by default right. uh, to everybody as opposed to something that might take place. Uh, and perhaps even laboriously uh, in, in, ver- in specific scenarios, such as, uh, you know, once you've been flagged at a security checkpoint or something like that. 
They 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 ask you to pull out your ID and then look you up to yeah. correlate you with other information and then maybe treat you differently based on whatever they find out. Right, but but we're dealing with a scenario here where the, this would all be happening in real time and it would happen perhaps with very little delay. And I think most importantly would be the the scale and pervasiveness. It would be right. happening everywhere all the time. I right. Mean, we know from experience how quickly new digital technology pervades all spaces. Yes. So but basically. You know, the, one of his arguments is that these are three broad components that it might be easier to regulate individually as mm-hmm. opposed to saying, let's not do facial recognition. Well, instead, let's maybe we go after each of these three things. I think that's not necessarily a bad idea to, to think about a framework for overall regulation of surveillance and, mm-hmm. and preservation of privacy. I mean, ultimately, I, I think I agree that it's important to better understand and regulate the entire process, recognizing the three different components of uh, identification, correlation, and discrimination individually. I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to frame this as an argument against banning or regulating facial recognition because to me that sounds kind of like saying, well, international treaties banning the use of smallpox virus as a weapon of war miss the point that we need to rethink our entire concept of war and defense and we need to regulate international conflict in a more comprehensive way. Um, I mean like yes, that would be true but if you don't know when and whether that full comprehensive thing is going to be accomplished and you do currently have a consensus to ban the use of germ warfare, why wouldn't you do it? Absolutely. Um, here's another quote from that, that article though that I, that I was really taken by. Quote, the point is that it doesn't matter which technology is used to identify people. That there currently is no comprehensive database of heartbeats or gates doesn't make the technologies that gather them any less effective. And most of the time, it doesn't matter if identification isn't tied to a real name. What's important is that we can be consistently identified over time. And then on, on top of that, though, you, you know, once your real name is then attached to that information, there's no turning back, right? The system's building a picture of you move by move, purchase by purchase, search by search over the course of years, if not decades. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, because it's the Internet, what kind of system are we talking about? I mean, I would argue that it is a dystopia a little bit less like 1984 and more like Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where, you know, there's no one person in charge that you can rebel against. No one person seems to understand how it all works or call all the shots. It is a a terrible will emanating from the void that is expressed through millions of ant-like functionaries, each doing its bidding without being bidden. I mean, isn't the oppression scarier when there's no boss in charge of it all that you can rebel against? Absolutely. And especially when it's it's a case like facial recognition, where a lot of the... uh, a lot of the the advancements that have been made, and then uh, more specifically, a lot of the the cases where it it has been or is being um, uh, rolled out, uh, you know, it's often it's, it's not as a situation where people are getting to vote on it or even necessarily having uh, any kind of really broad uh, uh, discussion about it before it takes place. It just sort of happens, and then here we are. You know, so not only is there no key individual in place that you can blame and rebel against. There's like, they're not even necessarily a set point in time where you could say, we have to go back and change this. Right. You know, get in a time machine and try and prevent facial recognition uh, from being rolled out. And where do you go? Uh, Who do you try and stop? Who do you try and speak to except to the whole world? You know, another thing I would say is to go back to my germ warfare analogy, 
I think it's possible that that he's not quite right that the the different methods of IDing you and tracking you are indistinguishable from each other. I think it's possible that facial recognition is an especially insidious and corrupting type of automated identification compared to some other methods like you know IDs of credit card numbers or mm-hmm. MAC addresses on your phone because our lives are built around faces. Our mm-hmm. social existence and our cultures are built around interfacing with faces. I mean, it, it seems like somehow a, a more dangerous kind of well of information to poison in the culture than to say like, well, you know, your phone knows where you are. I mean, you could potentially smash your phone with a hammer. Yeah. And, and again, it, I think I've mentioned this already. So many of the things involving facial recognition, on the surface, it doesn't seem threatening. It seems like, well, we wanted machines to do what people could do. So we, we've created a way for them to do it. That's what we always wanted. How is that that terrifying. And I think part of it is... <laughs> Haven't you always wanted a person who is a boss who can watch you every minute of the day? Well, I mean, <laughs> yes, when you get into specific examples of it. But but I think oh, I think one of the keys is that when we're talking about automating this sort of thing, and, and the, when we're talking about the machine version of it, mm-hmm. we're talking about a version of it that exists on a scale and on a scope that is beyond human. And that's that's the thing. It's like we're not talking about a human capability anymore. We're talking about an inhuman capability. Uh, the same way that we've, you know, we've talked about consciousness before and we've sort of posed the question, well, is part of consciousness the limitation of what we can focus our attention on? Yeah. Is, there, is, is part of the key to being human, uh, is, is part of it the limitations on what our brains can do, on what our senses can do? And we're talking about models that are not limited by those senses or those, uh, you know, those computational resources. That's beautifully put, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you could be conscious of everything, I'm not sure you would be conscious anymore. I'm mm-hmm. not sure you'd be a person. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think you know this is something that that far more uh, specialized uh, people than myself uh, probably have better arguments about. But yeah, to to what extent extent would a super consciousness not be a consciousness? It would be beyond what we think of as consciousness. Yeah. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will discuss how facial recognition technology is already being used in several countries around the world. All right, we're back. All right, so let, let's look at just this is just going to be kind of a snapshot at a few different uh, a few different stories covering facial recognition as it is being rolled out right now as of this recording in uh, at the tail end of January 2020. So uh, the first uh, couple of sources I was looking at uh, there's a an opinion piece by Frederick uh, Kaufner. Uh, in The Guardian titled Facial Recognition Cameras Will Put Us All in in an Identity Parade. And uh, this piece also refers in places to reporting from the same month and publication by Vikram Dodd, a police and crime correspondent for The Guardian. Okay. So basically, London's Metro Police announced their intention to launch live facial recognition cameras in London, a city already known for mass surveillance surveillance via their CCTV system. Uh, It's a move condemned by civil liberty groups as uh, as a, quote, breathtaking assault on human rights. Uh, the police, however, claimed that 80 percent of people surveyed backed the move and they would only be used to catch violent criminals and find missing people. Uh, they also stressed that it will be properly posted and it will be rolled out with clarity and transparency uh, and, and only, f- you know, following outreach in affected communities. Hmm. 
Now, you know, we've kind of talked about about this already. If you if you stand by the notion that okay, I I, I trust the government as as it exists now, and I trust whatever model it will take in the future. I trust the keepers of this information and my personal information, and uh, and I don't have anything to hide anyway. Then okay, I guess you can easily get on board with something like that. But a lot of folks have have issues with this rollout in particular, as well as with facial recognition technology in general. Mm-hmm. So for starters, this comes as the uh, European Union is considering a temporary ban on facial recognition. And of course, this is also occurring as the UK continues to extract itself from the EU. Uh, Also, the only independent review of the Metro facial recognition public trials by one Pete Fussy of Essex University found that it was only verifiably accurate in just 19% of the cases, that opposed to the... uh, uh, to, I think it was something like a 70% success rate that uh, the Metro uh, police were claiming. Yeah, I mean, we saw uh, in the first episode, we talked about how the company Clearview AI claimed that they found correct matches up to 75% of the time. But we've definitely read reviews that that placed correct numbers way, way lower. Right. And and the other thing is there's no, there's no opt-out here. This is not, even though they're talking about targeted uses of it, mm-hmm. the technology is not targeted. All faces are scanned that are at all scannable. And therefore, everyone is in a virtual criminal lineup whenever they're in the sights of the camera. Um, This is a a quote from that opinion piece, Uh, quote, given that the system inevitably processes the biometric data of everyone, live facial recognition has the potential to fundamentally change the power relationship between people and the police and even alter the very meaning of public space. So, you know, the standard criticisms come up as well, uh, including misidentification, but not only misidentification, but also automated misidentification, which uh, the author charges shifts the burden of proof onto the falsely recognized individual. Right, because there's no human accuser. Right. It's just, oh, the machine said you did this, and it's it's up to you to prove that you are not that face, that that face is not yours. Again, and, and, and this is and, – and I want to stress that this is problematic even – if that uh, if even if the success rate were not so low like because obviously the technology is improving and that is not the answer that is part of the problem no i'm more scared when the success rate gets verifiably higher because then if the trust in it just keeps going up and up the fewer cases where people still get misidentified which always is going to continue to happen to some degree are are going to get more and more like un, you know terrified they're going to be more and more under the knife right i mean you end up with it, it, again it changes what is a public space well, a public space, then I can't go to the park without being in a virtual uh, like a lot, crime lineup. Mm-hmm. Like I am always going to be profiled as to be, as a potential criminal. So uh, yeah, um, it, it's a it, it's a good piece worth a, worth reading. So Kaltheriner, you know, sums this up by saying, you know, look, the stakes are very high with this kind of invasive technology. And while these rollouts are not without their critics, obviously, we've been talking about uh, the various criticisms of it, uh, but they argue that we still haven't really seen them subjected to true public debate. The the technology is happening faster than the awareness of it is. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I would point out another thing about it, which is just that – Okay, if you suddenly put a pause on this kind of technology and say we can't use it, 
and then you go under a review and you review and review and review and you're sure in the end, okay, it definitely the benefits outweigh the harms, mm-hmm. then you could still release it in the future. But I think you can't really go the other way. Right. Once you live in the facial recognition world, that animal's not getting back in the cage. Right. Yeah. Once you've sort of eroded the norms of uh – of privacy, like how do you go back? You know, you quickly enter an age where people who don't want to be a part of the the database are going to be seen as the outsiders and the fringe cases and the you know the the people who live out in in the hut in the woods. And perhaps that would be also because they would be effectively ostracized from so many of these systems. Yeah. Uh, and again, we're mainly talking about like state uses or police uses or whatever. But there's a whole other world to consider of just like uh, uh, distributed public use of facial recognition systems, which could be hugely socially important, mm-hmm. uh, could lead to new types of social ostracism and stuff. Yeah, or situations where, oh, well, I'm I'm opting out of facial recognition technology. Uh, oops, looks like it's going to make it really difficult for me to pay my bills because I need my face for identification on that. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to some examples of, of that currently in use uh, here in a bit. Or how about, I mean, it, this might sound petty, but imagine a world where uh, anytime somebody invites you to do something and you say, no, I can't, they can also very likely find out wherever you were at the time you couldn't do the thing they invited you to right. do. Yeah, uh, I was just having a conversation with my wife about smartphone technology, uh, about how I had recently been to a concert uh, venue, and uh, in, and I'm not going to name the organization that was handling the concert, but uh, you had to have a mobile entry ticket, which, as far as I know, that meant it had to be. I could be wrong on this, but my understanding was you had to have a, like a smartphone uh, version of your ticket to get in, which I just kind of blew me away because I'm like, what if you don't have a smartphone? Not everyone has one. Does this mean like only smartphone people are getting into this thing? And my wife had a similar situation with a parking deck where you had to have an app on your phone to get oh, in. Yeah. And and so you can easily imagine this kind of scenario extrapolated to um, to facial recognition. Like, oh, you're not opting in on facial recognition? Well, I'm sorry, you can't come to this 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 concert because you have to have a face scan to get in and your face will be scanned, of course, while you're in the venue by the security systems. Uh, But the UK, of course, is by far not the only place that's already trying to roll out uh, some kind of public form of facial recognition technology. I've read about uses in China. I've read about uses in Russia. Yeah. Even in Russia, though, civil rights activists are criticizing facial recognition technology as a a threat to privacy and human rights, uh, specifically for the technology's ability to, say, identify individuals at protests, store them in database, and then track them. Right. You could easily be put on the, the government's undesirables list. Here's a quote from Natalia. Natalia Zviagina, Amnesty International Russia's director. She's quoted in the January 2020 BBC article, Russia's Use of Facial Recognition Challenged in Court. Quote, facial recognition technology is by nature deeply intrusive as it enables the widespread and bulk monitoring, collection, storage, and analysis of sensitive personal data without individualized reasonable suspicion. Again, everybody's in the criminal lineup. Yeah, you don't have to do anything in particular to arouse suspicion. 
suspicion of yourself. Just by being in public, you, that's enough. According to the uh, the article, that BBC article, Moscow has about 160,000 CCTV cameras in operation in the city. And this month, month, they expanded the number using facial recognition with no explanation of how uh, privacy and human rights would be insured. Or, I mean, it seems if they would be insured because it seems like the, the, the basic system would, would be anathema to that. The, the BBC article also pointed out that the Moscow Depart- Department of Information Technology has reportedly signed a deal with the Russian firm Intech Lab to provide the need to provide the needed technology. And this firm had previously rolled out the fa- the Find Face app, which used data from um, a website that is often referred to as Russia's Facebook. It is not an actual Facebook website, but is often held up as the equivalent. Yeah, there are a lot of different sort of other countries' Facebooks. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, there's China to consider. So China has also rolled out facial recognition, and uh, it, there are a number of different uses and implica- implementations that you can find just all over the place. But you can find it in train stations, airports, stores, hotels, gated communities, uh, and more. I think I had seen allegations that it had been used in um, in attacks on the Uyghur communities, basically. Yes, uh, that's a big one. The uh, the tracking of um, the alleged tracking of, uh, of ethnic minorities uh, in China using these systems. But you also you also find it in other places. Like it's used for things that are almost comical but also troubling by just how tedious and small stakes they seem, such as uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, using it to catch toilet tissue thieves at bathrooms. <laughs> um, I, I, some of what I was reading about it came from a New York Times article by Amy Chin uh, that's spelled Q-I-N in case you want to look her up. I'm not going to name – I'm not going to mention the title of the article because it will spoil the fun of what I'm about to share. Uh, but uh, anyway, she in this, she described uh, China as a, a, quote, a country accustomed to surveillance, which I, I think is, a, is an interesting um, way of looking at it because I wonder if, it in, if China's case in some way provides a model of where some of these other countries we've mentioned could be headed very soon. Like mm-hmm. it is uh, just given a – a culture that is very broadly um, predisposed to to being okay with surveillance, uh, it, it might provide a future look at where where we're going in these other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for example, you see quite a bit of facial recognition used to do stuff like open your phone or make a payment. Something that the South China Morning Post uh, points out has been disrupted by the current uh, coronavirus outbreak. So in the wake of the, this you know, current global health threat, which has impacted China the most thus far, uh, lots of people are wearing surgical masks. Uh, and they were already, uh, in many cases, wearing these masks in high numbers due to po- pollution concerns. Uh, but the software that is used uh, in, in many of these instances is apparently struggling to deal with such little facial information requiring other biometric data uh, in, in order to still ID an individual. Wow. So, uh, so uh, Chen's article goes into this about like people basically having to make a choice between uh, being able to easily make payments at stores using facial recognition or feeling like they are adequately protected against a, a dangerous illness. This is a great example of something that I was searching for an example of later in the episode. So we'll have to remember this okay. for later. Now, I mentioned something kind of fun but also still scary in that it seems small stakes, and, uh, and that is the, the central point of uh, Chen's recent article, and that's the use of facial recognition technology to root out, quote, uncivilized behavior in, in Anhua province in eastern China. 
So using facial recognition data, uh, she writes that urban management, uh, the urban management department of uh, Suzhou published surveillance photos of individuals engaged in said uncivilized behavior with partial exposure of their names. So like a, a, a public shaming or yeah. public outing kind of like campaign? Like saying, look at these people. Her, her name is, you know, Amy or whatever. Uh, here they are engaged in uncivilized behavior. Well, they should not do this. What was the uncivilized behavior? I know you, you would think, okay, is it defacing, you know, uh, a public place? And graffiti. Is, yeah, uh, stealing the, the toilet paper even, uh, as low stakes as that same. No, it's even lower stakes. It's the wearing of full-length pajamas in public. What? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I've seen people wear pajamas in public. I am currently wearing clothes as I record this, uh, I'm wearing clothes that I also sleep in. So uh, I, I, <laughs> I think the last time you came to my house to let me borrow a book, I answered the door in pajamas and didn't realize until you were there. Right. Because, so I'm sorry, man. No, no. Be, you don't have to apologize because this is the universal truth. Uh, Chin also <laughs> describes it uh, thus in her article. Pajamas are comfortable. They're very comfortable. And public pajama wearing is common in China, especially among older women and especially in cold months and regions. And to, to add another level to the injustice, it's the sort of thing that is praised as fashionable when celebrities do it, but subject to this sort of backlash when it's common people. Right. And it's been a point of contention uh, uh, for, for a little while here with government officials trying to ban it in some places, but the people pushing back and saying, no, you know, this, this is a bridge too far. I want to wear my comfy pajamas, and if I want to wear them outside of my home, I will do so. It's not uncivilized to do this. And in this case, it's a rare, it's a rare example of, uh, of people in China pushing back against facial recognition technology uh, in a place, again, where the technology has already been highly established and is, is, is recognized and appreciated for the things that it makes easier in life, such as making payments uh, uh, when you're purchasing something at a store. Yeah, I mean, the process there is so clear suddenly how, like, you are lured in with convenience. You know, you're mm -hmm. lured in with immediate concrete benefits, and then there are these consequences that just come later. Right. Yeah, and, and again, it shows also – it shows you what happens when uh, the government or the police, you know, change their mind about how specific they need to be with the laws that they readily enforce. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like – it's a similar case to, you know, that we often encounter with, say, traffic cameras. Like, how are we supposed to feel about it? Like, yes, we don't want people just, you know, going through the traffic, like running every red light. There needs to be order. Uh, and I guess you know there needs to be there needs to be this idea that yes, if you break these rules, you will uh, you know you could be um, pulled over, you get a ticket, there could be some sort of a punishment in place. But when you have this situation where any any transgression, uh, you know, for uh, you know for even the smallest thing can be met with an automated fine, uh, you know that gets into an area that feels more like dystopia than order. Yeah, it certainly can. I mean, again, it's one of those things where it starts to get harder to argue with. Like, how do you argue with the the machine? The camera said you were speeding, and you're like, I wasn't speeding. What do you do? Yeah. So anyway, these I think these these examples I think they just they just help provide a more a more nuanced idea of like what's going on in the world right now with facial recognition, uh, and what the many pain points are, uh, and 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 what people where people are fighting back against it. Yeah. Uh, so I think now that we better understand how the technology is being deployed, of course, in the first episode, we talked about how it's being deployed even in the United States. The question is, how should we react? Like, what can we do? Uh, and I think maybe it'd be best to first talk about individual countermeasures and then come back to broader action after that. 
All right, so individual countermeasures. So something that an individual person can do in the face of uh, facial recognition technology. Yes. So a bunch of the existing knowledge about how to confuse and confound facial recognition tech was summarized in a really good article I was reading in Wired by Elise Thomas from February of 2019 called How to Hack Your Face and Dodge the Rise of Facial Recognition Tech. And unfortunately, Thomas points out that the best way to foil a facial recognition system is to know what method of facial recognition is being used. Uh, Thomas quotes a privacy advocate named Lily Ryan who says, quote, you really need to know what's under the hood to know what's most likely to work. And it can be very hard for the average person to know what kind of facial recognition is being used on them at any particular time. So it's worth pausing to look at different kinds of rebellion against the recognizing machine. Uh, I think the first one is the simpler one. The, the first would be an anonymity defense, some method of making your actual identity unrecognizable and presenting as an unknown, unscannable person. This would essentially trying to become faceless. Yeah, exactly. The second path would go beyond that into what are called presentation attacks in some of the literature. For example, there's an article that's linked by Thomas by uh, Raghavendra Ramachandra and Christoph Bush called Presentation Attack Detection Methods for Face Recognition Systems, a comprehensive survey uh, published in 2017 in ACM Computing Surveys. And so this is a survey of known presentation attacks, also known as direct attacks or spoof attacks. The authors write, quote, the goal of a presentation attack is to subvert the face recognition system by presenting a facial biometric artifact. So if you go in front of a facial recognition scanner and you hold up a picture of Nicolas Cage or you wear a Richard Nixon mask or something, you are conducting a presentation attack. You're not just trying not to be recognized as yourself, but actively trying to be recognized as someone else. Common methods here would include like presenting a photo of someone to a scanner. Uh, that has actually worked in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, playing a video of the target face or wearing a 3D mask of somebody else's head. All of these methods have had some success, but the researchers here describe uh, presentation attack detection algorithms or PAD algorithms that are countermeasures against the countermeasures. Now, a question you might be wondering is like, well, why would you want to present as someone else instead of just being anonymous? Well, I mean, there, there are all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, there are certainly nefarious reasons for that. If you get into a situation where, say, facial recognition is required to enter a gated community, well, then if you wanted to break into said gated community, it would, uh, it would behoove you to have uh, another person's face to wear, perhaps, you know, printed out. Exactly right. That could be the direct reason. Maybe you want access to a location or a device and access is granted to specific people based on facial recognition. So you use an authorized person's face in order to get in. But I can also see uh, an, another idea, which is perhaps rampant presentation attacks could be an effective method for fighting the facial recognition reign of terror because it would not deny these data collecting systems the data they want, not just do that. It would go further and gum up the databases with lots of confusing, incorrect information, which might in fact make them less useful overall. Yeah, I mean, another application here that uh, is awful to think about is the use of um, 
uh, you know, we're talking about the, sort of the automated guilt machine that could exist with facial recognition technology. Say you had it in for somebody, you know, you're mad at, uh, you know, a, a coworker or a schoolmate, then you go and you do something illegal with, uh, with a, a mask of that person's face. You know, not enough to, say, send them away forever, but enough to, say, uh, you know, to, to cause them a lot of grief in the short term, in the very least. Well, I mean, you don't know how well their, their defense would be. I mean, maybe it would send them away forever. I yeah. mean, I, I don't know how much faith the criminal justice system is going to end up putting in the verdicts of these machines. I wouldn't be surprised if it's too much. We've seen that before. We've certainly seen models of that uh, yeah. with uh, you know, uh, some of the past episodes where uh, where we've discussed uh, forensic science. For yeah, instance. exactly. Yeah, there, there are a lot of methods of forensic science that have been uh, vastly overestimated in their in their confidence. Now, finally, another reason I was thinking it might be useful to present as another human instead of just trying to make yourself anonymous is it's not hard at all to imagine scenarios where being unscannable or being anonymous will itself be a problem, will restrict your rights, make you a target, etc. Like the anonymity could attract attention rather than discouraging it. So the alternative would be to appear as a real scannable person but not yourself. Right. Wearing a faceless mask in public is going to draw more attention than looking like someone else. Yes, uh, even if, even if it wasn't like that great a mask, you know, uh, it would it would still it would still potentially draw less attention. Now back to Thomas's article. Thomas writes that, of course, you know, the simplest method of fighting facial recognition is what would normally be called occlusion, hiding all or part of your face. But again, this is more difficult and more complicated than it sounds. So let's say you want to walk around in public with your face completely hidden behind a cloth or a zip-up hood or something. You know, there are, there are actually people selling basically uh, backwards hoodies, you know, front zip hoodies that cover your entire head. Uh, first of all, is that legal? In a lot of places, no. In a lot of places in, for example, Europe and Canada and the U.S., it's illegal to cover your entire face in public. Uh, but even if these laws were changed or you're in a place where that's not illegal, is this socially feasible? Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. But OK, let's say you decide it is not uh, practical to completely occlude your entire face. What if you just cover part of your face? Unfortunately, Thomas writes that a lot of facial recognition software is good enough now to make partial covering of the face ineffective as a defense. Uh, quote, for example, a balaclava, which leaves the most important facial features exposed, the eyes, the mouth, the nose, may not actually do much to prevent a person from being identified. Researchers have found that by using a deep learning framework trained on 14 key facial points, they were able to accurately identify partially occluded faces most of the time. This includes wearing glasses, scarves, hats, or fake beards. Yeah, I mean, when you're getting down to things like like the measurement between your eyes, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's it's probably going to be visible in most of these uh, facial occlusion uh, methods, and it's uh, it's not something you can easily mess with. You know, I mean, it, short of like massive facial injury. Uh, I can't think of, of anything much that's going to alter that measurement. Yeah. And there are apparently multiple measures like that of a face. You know, as long as you want to have your eyes and your mouth and stuff exposed, there are probably going to be systems, especially in the near future, 
that will be fairly accurate identifying you anyway. Now, another thing, as I mentioned a minute ago, there's some evidence that 3D printed masks based on other people's faces can be pretty effective, but they might not remain effective for long. Remember, of course, uh, we've got these uh, PAD algorithms, the presentation attack detections, and they're developing quickly. And also, I mean, is that anything close to practical for regular people? Like, It seems more like an option that might be available to a professional spy, but right. not just as somebody trying to live their life. Now, there's another interesting method that uh, Elise Thomas mentions in her article, which is confusing the computer into believing it is not looking at a face at all, uh, attacking not the facial recognition stage, but the facial detection stage. I hadn't so much thought about that, and I think that's a really good point. Uh, one solution along these lines is widely known as CV Dazzle, which stands for Computer Vision Dazzle. This is Dazzle kind of in the same sense it's used in uh, like a military context. You would put Dazzle on the side of a ship in a, a context of warfare, which are like different lines going in different ways that apparently make it harder to look at the ship and determine its speed and its bearing. Ah, uh, like, like some of the more um – like lightning bolty uh, camouflage designs one sees. Not, yes. not necessarily bedazzled, which is the first <laughs> thing that came to my mind. Like just bedazzle your face. Uh, well, the, it's funny because that does kind of come in. But, oh, yeah. but yeah, I think it's based on the idea of a visual dazzle. And so what it involves for people is altering the appearance of your head to stop facial detection algorithms from flagging it as a face. And the most common ways to do this are with makeup, with hair styling and coloring, with facial accessories like hair clips and stick-on rhinestones. So there is some bedazzling going on. Uh, Robert, I included a few examples here for you to look at. These are from a website, cvdazzle.com, which offers some explicit style guides that people can use. Oh, wow. These are great. I mean, these look like futuristic hair and makeup designs that you might see in like Blade Runner or something. Yes. Uh, now, again, here, clearly the the purpose of these designs is not just to make your face look different. It is to try to make your face look like something other than a face. Which could – I can see proving potentially difficult coming back again to that um, that blog post uh, that we discussed in one of the earlier episodes um, uh, about uh, uh, about trying to uh, to fool the Skype uh, facial recognition oh, software. The, yeah, the background blurring thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so like you know, even the stuffed giraffe was getting recognized as mostly a face. Mm -hmm. uh, you, so uh, it's, it's a more difficult challenge than, than one might think. Uh, but, but again, these visual examples from cvdazzle.com I think will be very informative uh, if, if you can't quite picture it, look these up. Yeah, totally. Um, now, a lot of them involve things like um, sort of different streaks of light and dark in the hair and in lines across the face and makeup, uh, hair partially covering the face. In a lot of cases, things stuck on the face that kind of make it make the shape look different. Thomas quotes uh, Christoph Bush, one of the authors of that study we mentioned earlier, and he says, quote, from an academic research perspective, the makeup attack is gaining more attention. However, this kind of attack demands good makeup skills in order to be successful. And that's a really good point. In other words, it's not good enough just to do some unusual things to your hair and put different colored makeup on at random. The face design needs to be specially tailored to obscure and break up specific, like, lines and shapes and points on the face in order to make it sabotage the detection stage. So if, if you want to know what these specific techniques are, you can find guides online from people who study the issue. 
Now, I, I think this is really cool. And, uh, you know, being being somebody who's into, I guess, weirdness myself, like I like these styles. Like if I saw somebody wearing these styles, I would think it was cool. But I, I think we should be real and say these styles are in daily life simply not socially feasible for a lot of people, maybe most right. people. Well, for one thing, socially, they're going to have the opposite effect. Instead, right. you're going to draw attention to yourself from humans, even if you are ob- obscuring the uh, attention of the machine. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in addition to that, a lot of people's friends, families, especially workplaces, will probably not be okay with them styling their hair and makeup deliberately to make their face look as unlike a face as possible. I'm okay with it around here. At oh, the, the yeah, office. me too. I, but I, but, I don't know uh, if the bosses would be okay. Right. With, yeah. You can easily imagine like a very conservative or a governmental uh, kind of uh, employer would, you know, you're going to have a very uh, firm idea of what your hair and your, your makeup should consist of. And again, if you're not allowed to wear, say, pajamas in public, uh, I can't imagine this would fly either. And there's another complication, actually, that, that makes this even more difficult. Uh, so the, the, the CV Dazzle method is only effective at fighting face detection technologies that rely on visible light and not all do. Thomas cites, uh, for example, Apple's Face ID, which, you, which actually uses infrared light. The system detects sort of more about the underlying contours and like bone structure of your face, and it is not easily thrown off by unusual patterns of light and dark colors. The CV Dazzle wouldn't necessarily affect a system like that, uh, though there are other methods you could maybe use. Apparently, you might be able to protect your face from infrared detection by, for instance, wearing a hat that projects infrared light on your face in weird patterns as demonstrated by one study from Chinese and American researchers in 2018. But again, like, is that realistic that that people would be able to do that? Thomas mentions another method that I like, overwhelming distraction, (laughs) uh, kind of like a visual denial of service attack on facial recognition. The solution here is pretty simple. You cover yourself in lots of images of faces, shirt, scarf, earrings, all with pictures of faces on them. Uh, Would this always work? Probably not, but it will be effective with some systems. And she ends her article by mentioning again like major problems with existing facial recognition technology that we've already alluded to, like huge numbers of false matches, errors that skew along race and gender lines, all kinds of problems like that. Uh, She ends up saying, quote, the real solution to issues around facial recognition, the tech community working with other industries and sectors to strike an appropriate balance between security and privacy in public spaces. Uh, which uh, that may be an answer, but I mean, I wonder, will that be good enough? In the first episode of the series, we discussed several figures who have called for either strong regulations or even outright bans on facial recognition technology. So I think next we should look at that as a solution, maybe after we come back from a break. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So we were just talking about the the individual approaches to fighting facial recognition, like things you could do to disrupt your own image and or potentially fool uh, a facial recognition uh, device. Mm-hmm. But now we're getting more into bans and regulations, the broader uh, governmental legislative moves that could be made uh, to keep this kind of technology from getting out of control. Yeah, and there was one article I was reading that I thought was uh, pretty straightforward and made a very good case. It was by Evan Selinger and Woodrow Hartzog. 
uh, published in the New York Times in October 17th, 2019. It was called, What Happens When Employers Can Read Your Facial Expressions? That's, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, uh, so Selinger is a professor of philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Hartzog is a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University. And they are responding to the fact that, of course, many, many are calling for a ban on this technology. Uh, and this is one of these rare cases left in, in the U.S. politics, at least, where there is actually some bipartisan agreement. Uh, apparently, some right-wing politicians like Jim Jordan have expressed concern speaking to NPR in July 2019. He said he thought it was time for a timeout on this technology and that we needed to put safeguards in place before we went forward with developing it. Uh, meanwhile, you've got left-wing leaders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders have, call, have called for regulation or bans on facial recognition. I think uh, Sanders announced the ban as part of a criminal just, justice reform agenda for his presidential campaign. So all over the map, people are throwing up flags and saying, "We stop. This is, this is scary. We need to do something about it. And that at least is reassuring. Let's just hope that that can maintain uh, that you know that there, there remains bipartisan support and it doesn't wind up politicized in one way or the other. But but certainly the idea of of your face not becoming part of a, a massive database, the idea of not being in a perpetual police lineup, I feel like like that is going to strike a chord with with. With, with 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 most demographics in America. Well, I think it's one of those weird things where there is some bipartisan support, but there's also just not nearly enough awareness. Mm, yeah. So like a few people on different parts of the political spectrum are all sort of in agreement about this. Like, wait a minute, we need to do something. But it's not a lot of people overall. Right. And if all and if the only thing you've really heard has been like, say, pitched from, um, say, a company yeah. that is specializing in this, perhaps with a law enforcement uh, focus, like you just you just might think, oh, well, that's Sounds fine. Uh, say, you know, find missing people and stop criminals. Sure, I'll sign off on that. Those are good not, things. Those yeah. are good things, but it's not the complete picture. Right. Uh, so they also, the authors here note that many local governments have already formally restricted their government agencies, including police, from using it. So nothing really strong has happened at the national level, but like uh, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, Somerville, Massachusetts, and some other local areas have, have put a ban in place. Uh, so the authors of this piece, Hartzog and Selinger here, argue that it is not enough just to limit the ways in which facial recognition is used or to, say, restrict government agencies such as police departments from buying these tools. They say that, unfortunately, the only way to actually protect ourselves is to enact a complete and total ban on the technology. Quote, we must ban facial recognition in both public and private sectors before we grow so dependent on it that we accept its inevitable harms as necessary for progress. Perhaps over time, appropriate policies can be enacted that justify lifting a ban, but we doubt it. Uh, so I, I think they make a pretty good case and, and we'll get to a little bit more about it in a second. But, you know, you might be wondering, like, if there is actually some bipartisan agreement that facial recognition could be devastating to our basic liberties, like what's the holdup? You're right. You know, uh, what's the problem? And so, of course, the authors note that in general, the United States is very reticent to enact bans on technology, like with uh, with one of the few counterexamples being various types of malware. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good because I think it makes sense to think of facial recognition technology as a form of cultural malware. Yeah. It seeps in, makes copies of itself. You know, you get it as a byproduct of something you wanted to download. <laughs> 
But of course, there's another thing. The authors don't really speculate about these motives. But obviously, one big hurdle is that there's just a lot of money to be made in this sector. Mm -hmm. And and even worse, there are significant sunk costs. Like many extremely talented people and powerful institutions have already devoted significant resources and, and time to improving facial recognition software. And we know that humans do not like abandoning sunk costs. You know, right. once you've already invested in something, you're kind of you're psychologically stuck with it. You know, do you want to throw all the all that work in the trash now? Right, right. You know, companies that have, have created this kind of technology that are looking for ways to expand new markets that they can they can get into new new uses. And certainly, when you have uses that in and of themselves are you know advantageous things like making payments personal security mm-hmm. um and just the you know the broad, broadly speaking the idea of finding missing persons and catching criminals yeah but, i mean again, it, but makes all those things in isolation make a, a make a, a good case Right, and that's actually the first main argument. So the the authors of this piece outline three major arguments that are used by the advocates of facial recognition. Uh, and the first one is exactly that. It's that, well, there might be some harms, but they, they argue the potential benefits outweigh the harms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, think about the benefits to law enforcement alone. Think of all the violent criminals that could be caught. Think of all the missing persons that could be found. Uh, and on top of that, think about some of the obvious consumer demand that there would be for public versions of the software. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the kind of thing that like we would be terrified about the thought of people using it on us, but might be really excited to use it on others. You yeah. know, it's just like this uh, it, this basic failure to like reverse the situation and, and apply the same rules you would want applied to yourself to other people. So under this mindset, instead of being banned, the, the people who say, you know, the benefits outweigh the harms, they would probably say, well, facial recognition should be lightly regulated. You know, maybe we could require transparency and make sure consumers are aware when face data is being harvested for recognition purposes. You know, you can't do it surreptitiously. Uh, and the authors here disagree. They write, quote, Notice and choice has been an abysmal failure. Social media companies, airlines, and retailers overhype the short-term benefits of facial recognition while using unreadable privacy policies and vague disclaimers that make it hard to understand how the technology endangers users' privacies and freedom. Uh, so, you know, like, does anybody actually read the end user license agreement? <laughs> of course no, not. No. no. I mean, like, even if we did, would some vague legal phrasing about ownership of face data cause us to actually forego participation in technological trends that everybody around us is adopting? I mean, again, of course not. Like, even if the harms vastly outweigh the benefits, the benefits are immediate and concrete, and the harms are long-term and abstract. Exactly the kinds of cases where we are so bad at, like, making informed decisions. Like, would you like a slice of pizza right now? Just be aware that, you know, it may compromise the integrity of your identity in some way that's difficult to picture. Right. Now, the next uh, counter-argument they explore is that the idea that strong fears about new technology Technologies are overreactions. And we've, you know, we've looked at lots of ways that this can absolutely happen. We've discussed it on this show and also a lot on invention. Think about the panic about erasers. Remember that? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. The idea that, oh, erasers are, are, exist. All my writings will be erased. Mm-hmm. Or remember some of the panics that uh, came with the uh, advent of photography. Right, yeah. And just the general idea of, of future shock, you know, the idea that, that rapidly advancing technology is overwhelming and uh, 
um, yeah, that is a subject unto itself. Yeah. So this argument would be that things sometimes just seem scary and provoke shock because they're new. But once we get used to it, it's great. Uh, the authors disagree. They do not think this is the case with facial recognition. They argue that the backlash is not just hyperventilating about something that's unfamiliar. In very concrete ways, facial recognition does have a unique power to create a world with pervasive automated surveillance in a way that's disempowering to in individuals in almost uncountable ways. Uh, they write, quote, big companies, government agencies, and even your next door neighbors will seek to deploy it in more places. They'll want to identify and track you. They'll want to categorize your emotions and identity. They will want to infer where you might shop, protest, or work, and use that information to control and manipulate you, to deprive you of opportunities. It's likely that the technology will be used to police social norms. Uh -huh. People who skip church or jaywalk will be noticed and potentially ostracized, and you'd better start practicing your most convincing facial expressions. Otherwise, during your next job interview, a computer could code you as a liar or a malcontent. Now, remember in the last episode when we talked about like these services that are being sold as like identifying people's emotions through facial recognition, which there was a major study that really undercut that and said these things are not very accurate. But th I, I, that doesn't mean they're not going to be used. Right. And in terms of uh, po policing social norms, again, go back to the pajamas because uh, it's as slightly hilarious as the pajama case is. It is also frightening because it is a firm example of facial uh, recognition technology being used to police social norms. Yes. Uh, and then the third counterargument they look at is basically the argument that Bruce Schneier was making when we referenced his article earlier. Uh, it's that facial recognition technology is just one branch of a broader privacy and civil liberty debate. Um, and we, we need to focus on all surveillance, not just this particular technology. So how about, you know, uh, things that identify you by your gait, the way you move or about uh, retinal scanning or brain mm -hmm. scanning or anything like that. And, and I'd say about this one, well, you know, it's true. Like other technologies could represent the kind of threat to privacy and freedom that facial recognition presents. And some of those but, are scary and awful too. You know, yeah. we're, not, we're not saying like don't, um, don't ban gait recognition scanning or, you know, don't scan my brain while I'm at uh, a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say facial recognition is getting special attention because it's already here. Yeah. Like people are selling these programs. Uh, and another thing is that, you know, different technologies are slightly different and they re require different regulatory schemes. You know, the authors here point out that uh, the law singles out automobiles, spyware, medical devices, and, and a bunch of other different kinds of technologies with their own laws and rules. They're not all covered under one type of law. We've got individual agencies for like airplanes and for phones and stuff. Uh, but then another thing is that faces are central to our identities. In the first episode, you know, we joked about going around constantly changing masks. But is this socially feasible? I mean, be realistic. Like, we need to see each other's faces in order to see each other. Seeing faces is the soul of human life. Yeah, one of the one of the whole aspects of the whole bummer situation that we've discussed uh, involving social media and just electronic culture in general is that we don't see each other's faces. Not not the living face. Not the face that shows expression in humanity. We just see the, the manufactured faces. And uh, we don't want to live in a world of physically manufactured faces because we've cre created a technology and allowed it to get out of hand. Yeah. Uh, and so I think often with issues like this and, and something you run into with a lot of these counter arguments, the, these things that are in favor of facial recognition are 
we argue in ways that fall into a trap of talking about just what's possible or what's technically true rather than what's realistic and what's practical. Like, could you protect people with opt-in methods where they have to sign a EULA disclosing that they've surrendered their privacy? I mean, in theory, yes, but in practice, we know we just know this doesn't work. You know, we all just click I agree. And again, the benefits are immediate and concrete and the harms are long-term and abstract. Yeah, I want to see what I'll look like as an old man on my iPhone right now. I don't care where this software, where this app is coming from and where this facial data might or might not be going. Yeah, and I'm mean, obviously I'd advise people not to do that. But if you react to that with a mentality of, well, you signed the contract, you've got nothing to complain about, that just doesn't take the experience of human life seriously. Right. And it's another one of these cases which to, to, um, to summon the words of William Gibson of technology making packs with the devil possible, things that were only the, the wild imaginings of, uh, of people in the past, we bring to life with technology, making AI demons, making it possible to, to, to sell your face to some faceless entity. I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is like – this is somehow a case of like a horrible fantasy becoming reality. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and this could be the case with a lot of things. So it's not just the EULA agreements about, you know, about people arguing about like what's technically possible without just acknowledging what's realistic. What are people really going to do with their lives? Same thing is, you know, you could argue, well, if you don't like it, you could go around with masks on or something in yeah. order to opt out. I mean, you could try that, but are people actually practically going to want to live that way? Yeah. I mean, not only living with a mask, but living among the masked uh, because, oh, God, we've talked about this before, just the psychology of, of masks and what happens when you wear one and the group think of mask wearing and, and generally the idea of encountering a bunch of people wearing masks or the same mask is a frightening uh, proposition and there are countless historical uh, examples of that. Yeah. Uh, so the authors here conclude, quote, we support a wide-ranging ban on this powerful powerful technology, but even limited prohibitions on its use in police body cams, DMV databases, public housing and schools would be an important start. And they say, the public is ready for this, and the actions by San Francisco, Somerville, Berkeley, and Oakland show it. Our society does not have to allow the spread of new technology that endangers our privacy. And, and I got to say, just speaking for myself, I, I, I am highly convinced by this point of view. I mean, yeah. like, I, I think if you ultimately in the future were really confident that you wanted to change your mind and move forward with facial recognition technology, you could lift a ban. But like you can't undo it once the technology is out there and, and it's coming really fast. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, the other side is, yes, yeah, so you can think of various situations where you put bans in place and then something bad happens. Something summons up a great deal of fear in a nation and allows us to slide back into this uh, situation and say, give up various privacies and rights in the name of feeling a little less afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for now, you yeah. know? Uh, before the fear, because imagine how much further we would sink into into the fear, uh, you know, if we already had all these technologies in place, eroding and taking away our freedoms. This is a topic I think it's worth spreading the word about. I mean, like this is something a lot of people just probably aren't thinking about at all, and it's coming really fast. So uh, it, it's worth raising the awareness. Yeah, yeah, worth. Uh Worth uh, recording three episodes that I must admit are not fun episodes. Uh, the middle one was a lot of fun, I thought. Okay, the middle one. The middle one was more fun because we we're just talking about the basic um, biological facial recognition, and parts of this one were, were at least 
entertaining. That that Wired article was was a very fun, but also you know disturbing read. Uh, but it is this is a troubling topic. I am I am more troubled for having researched it and recorded it. Uh, but I think we should be troubled by things like this, and it gives us the it, it gives us the, the space from which to to act. Uh, you know, hopefully, just by spreading the word about it, and uh, and you know, getting to a place where we have some of these protections in place for our own faces. That's right. Don't build the nightmare mask land. Right. Save your face. Yeah. Do not go gentle into that good night. Right. <laughs> rage, rage against the scanning of the face. Yes. <laughs> I will stress, though, that this was the, the third uh, of a three-part series. So if you didn't listen to the other two, go back and listen to them uh, because it will help fill in all the pieces for you. Totally. But also it's worth pointing out that this is such a bleeding-edge issue that even though you'll be listening to this episode mere days after we recorded it, uh, there's just there's just going to be more and more coverage. There's going to be you know uh, new movements happening, new, uh, new studies, sadly new rollouts that uh, are going to meet with controversy. So... Um, just keep that in mind, especially if you end up coming back to this episode, say, months from now. We're in the frenzy period right now. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to just uh, jump on over to the iHeart listing for the show, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com and you will be redirected. But wherever you get the show, make sure that you rate, review, and uh, spread the word because that's how we keep the show alive. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.